Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Jennifer. We've actually been separated for a little bit over the holidays. I've grown so used to spending all of my time in Zoom rooms with you. This was actually kind of hard for me. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's been nice to have a little break from our book events. And uh, it's you know always nice to have a break from podcasting for a week or two. But I did miss you as well. So um, it's good to see you. Well, what a tender opening to the show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it. I, it's it's just it's hard to get. I don't want to get emotional uh, with the microphone in front of me. Well, it's a new year and there is a lot going on. But one of the big things in our world is that Biden finally nominated a candidate for Secretary of Education. Right. So that was one of the last of the Biden administration's nominations. We waited a long time for it, and uh, some of the edu reporters uh, began to express great exasperation on Twitter that they like wouldn't be able to go on vacation because they were still waiting for this pick. Um, and I think we have the right guest uh, to come on and talk with us about Miguel Cardona, who has been nominated for Secretary of Education, and to talk a little bit about uh, what Cardona may be moving forward as his federal policy agenda over the next few years. I couldn't agree more. Kevin Wellner is going to be joining us. He's a professor of education at the University of Colorado Boulder School of Education and the director of the National Education Policy Center. But first, Jack, I have a little request to make of you. I've been thinking a lot about a previous Secretary of Education, not Betsy DeVos, but Arne Duncan. I went back and I found the very first speech that Duncan delivered after his boss, Barack Obama, was sworn in. And I would like for you to set the stage for our conversation today by reading us a little bit of that speech. And as a belated Christmas gift for me, maybe make your reading especially dramatic. Okay, Jennifer, uh, I have something queued up for you. Uh, this is uh, not what I want to be doing uh, right now, but just for you, I will do my best, Arnie. I'm also hopeful because the leadership in Congress is so committed to education. They are very passionate about the issue, and they recognize its importance to our future. I am hopeful because of the incredible progress in school districts, colleges, and universities all across the country, developing new learning models, new educational approaches, and bringing new energy and ideas to the field of education. From Teach for America, to the KIPP charter schools, to instructional innovations at colleges and universities, we have proven strategies ready to go to scale. 
Thank you, Jack. That was very dramatic. And welcome to the show, Kevin Wellner. So later on in that speech, Arne Duncan makes a reference to what he called the, quote, perfect storm for reform. It was an expression that he trotted out endlessly. And I have a feeling that we're not going to be hearing about a perfect storm for reform from Miguel Cardona. Kevin, what do you think? I'm still mesmerized by the dulcet tones of, of Jack doing Arnie and the sincerity on his face. And we're on Zoom here and the sincerity on his face as he was reading that was really also very impressive. Yes, I mean, I, I think that it struck me as well in listening to that first speech uh, and reading it, how Arnie Duncan was already touting TFA and KIPP and performance pay and in part that Jack didn't read uh, uniform college and career-ready standards, right? These were themes that never were released during the entire time when Arnie Duncan was in office. And so it was very clear very early on what we would be uh, getting from D.C., in terms of education policy. It'll be interesting to see whether Secretary Cardona will be as clear up front in in giving us guideposts in terms of what the administration will be doing. But I do think that the stars being aligned, this perfect storm for reform, is no longer in place. Those stars have have moved quite a bit in our galaxy over, over the last 12 years now. We now see, particularly within the Democratic Party, a great deal of disagreement with those uh, earlier policy initiatives. So I think one early sign of the delicate row that that Cardona is trying to tread, I saw a tweet from him the other day that under him, the Department of Education is going to put teachers, students, and families first. Well, um, now that we have uh, that specificity, my my next question may seem uh, a bit a bit too vague. Um, and I, I would just love Kevin uh, to get your thoughts on this because um, you know, as is so clear in the case with Arnie Duncan and that speech, and as was so clear with Betsy DeVos. Um, secretaries come in with ideas, right? That that's a part of the vetting process is for them to share their vision and to see if it aligns with whatever the president's vision is as well as with whatever is actually viewed as achievable um, in whatever the present context is. And so, you know, we may not know exactly what ideas the Biden team favors, but uh, you know, I think we can probably guess about the broader package of ideas that might have political currency right now um, in terms of what in this context, in the context of a pandemic, in the context of cratering state budgets, in the context of widening inequality, um, and in the context of, uh, you know, an absence of uh, leadership from the Democratic Party on education, right? That the neoliberal consensus has sort of dissolved. Um, what are the sorts of things uh, that we might expect? Well, to some extent, I think the answer to that involves what we can expect not to see. And then I think there's also a what we can expect to see. So I think in terms of what we could expect not to see, I don't think we'll see the teacher bashing that we saw during most of the uh, Obama administration. I do think there'll be a focus on compensatory programs and resources, at least rhetorically, but there's a real question about what will get through Congress. During the campaign, candidate Biden 
was very clear that he wanted to triple essentially the the IDEA and ESEA Title I budgets. And getting that through Congress is going to be difficult, but it's actually even more important now than when he initially started pushing for those policies because of what's happened to the state budgets and what's happened in terms of students' needs as a result of the pandemic and the associated economic uh, hit. I guess I expect several strong new initiatives or developments, one of which would concern community schools, full-service community schools. I think the people that that Biden himself and the people around Biden are committed to that. I expect a push for high-quality pre-K, a federal investment in that. And given Dr. Cardona's history as a person and as a researcher during his doctoral program, I expect an emphasis on the education of English learners. If Miguel Cardona makes it through the confirmation gauntlet, the first task that awaits him is reopening the schools. Biden has made it clear that this is one of his top priorities. The administration released a complicated plan to start testing teachers and students regularly. That would be the COVID testing, not the standardized variety. There are already some red flags in that plan. It turns out that it's really expensive to do this mass testing, so they're just going to do it less frequently. I want to ask you about this, Kevin, because the debate about how, when, or even if to reopen the schools is so loud and so fraught. You said that you expect to see less teacher bashing under a Biden administration, but in a lot of ways, teachers and especially their unions are being painted as the villains in the reopening story. The experience that families have had in taking over the role of teachers has, I think, provided some insights in terms of how difficult a job teachers have. And schools play a a role beyond simply teaching the three R's. And I think people have come to appreciate that. Even non-parents have come to appreciate that. I think there's also an understanding that teachers, when they sign up to educate our children, aren't signing up to risk their lives. And that we need to be respectful that particularly teachers who are in higher risk groups don't want to risk their personal safety and obviously disrupt their families by risking serious illness. So there's that. But at the same time, there is a tremendous desire among many, many families to get back to some form of normal with regard to not just the education of their kids, but the childcare that schools provide so that family life um, and work life can return to some semblance of normal. Teachers have, in different places, taken very different positions, whether you're talking about individual teachers or teacher unions, uh, have taken very different positions in terms of what they require before they get back into schools. And of course, throughout January, some states will start to provide the vaccines for teachers. So there will be an ability of teachers to go back to school in a more safe context. We also know more in January of 2021 than we did in spring of 2019-2020 school year in terms of what schools have to do in order to be safe. For example, we've learned that ventilation is much more important than wiping down surfaces. We didn't know that going in. We didn't have a lot of the resources. State governments and the federal government weren't providing the resources that schools needed, not just for testing, but for plexiglass, masks, all the, you know, cleaning supplies, all sorts of things. So it's a mixed bag. And I think that we've seen some tragic cases of teachers who have passed away from COVID. And it's not just a hypothetical. I want to jump in here because I think it's a nice transition point to talk about 
some of the more ambitious efforts that the Biden administration and you know Secretary nominee Cardona might drive forward here in light of this context that you're talking about, Kevin, this, you know, essentially national crisis with regard to how well historically marginalized students have been served during this pandemic, that we simply don't have the kind of social safety net for young people uh, that would have been required to ensure uh, that every young person returns to school, essentially uh, where they were when they left school, right? They'll come back even more highly unequal in terms of their experiences. And one of the things that I know that you've been working on is this question of what does opportunity cost? What is the price of equal opportunity? And it seems like there are two approaches here. One would be to fund schools so that they can create equal opportunity. And that would, of course, require a much more massive investment than we've already made in schools. And the other would be to fund social programs so that schools can expect that equal treatment will produce equal results. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit through that, as well as what the political prospects of, you know, an ambitious effort like that might be. Yes, thank you, Jack. So we have a project called the Price of Opportunity Project here at the National Education Policy Center. That's really just getting off the ground, but it required a lot of groundwork to do that. So we've been thinking about it for a while. And the question we're asking is, what is needed to provide opportunities for every child, regardless of circumstances, to succeed in life? And there are two ways of doing that, of what we call lifting all children up. There's the school-centric or the great equalizer reform approach. And then there's the social and economic policy approach. The interesting thing is that we as researchers or policymakers don't know how much either option costs. Uh, instead, we, we price out lesser goals, like the cost of adequacy that might be required under a state constitution. And, and so we go into these discussions having already lowered our policy expectations and our outcome expectations for kids. It reminds me of the criticism of President Obama, that he would negotiate with himself, you know, first watering down his initiatives before he starts, even starts negotiating with Republicans. And it's, it's self-defeating if our goal is genuine equality. If our goal is that, is genuine equity, um, for example, a great equalizer school system that somehow makes up for all the larger societal obstacles that marginalized and minoritized uh, children experience outside of school. If our goal is that type of genuine equity that provides opportunities for every child, right, regardless of circumstances to succeed in life, what would that entail? What would it cost? And we don't know. And it's hard for us as a society to get to a destination if we don't know where we're going. Our project, we feel like these you know, 15th century navigators, you know, trying to come up with a rough map that we and others can then uh, refine, you know, here be dragons, right? So we're, we're trying to get to that point through this project so that we can start looking at the actual, if, we're, if we are serious about that goal, Listening to Kevin got me wondering how our presumptive Secretary of Education views the role of schools. Kevin points out that in speeches, Cardona has referred to schools as the, quote, great equalizer. It's very familiar rhetoric, but it's also a pretty tough sell these days. 
if we go back, we'd probably find that statement from every secretary. I know Arne Duncan spoke about schools being the great equalizer. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that schools are somewhat equitable from place to place? And isn't it nice that we're giving these, these poor disadvantaged kids the same sort of schooling opportunity or something like it that rich kids have, which is, I think, itself not really true? Or is it that schools are really a great equalizer in the sense that we disadvantage kids and kneecap them in every possible way outside of schools? Somehow the schools themselves are able to overcome all that disadvantage and be the great equalizer so that kids emerge from the school system with some sense of equal opportunities overall. I don't think we've come close to the first one, <laughs> to the, just providing equal school opportunities, but we certainly never pursued or come close to the second. And the problem here is this idea that we can ignore the welfare state, ignore the larger opportunities that kids need to have and kids and their families and communities need to have in order to be successful in life. And because we have this myth of the schools as the great equalizer, you know, we don't, we don't have to worry about societal equality because the real equality comes through the school system. And as long as we are going to grab onto that rhetoric, we should know what that would entail. And that's what we're trying to figure out. I want to share some audio of Miguel Cardona that was recently put out by the Biden transition team. You'll probably notice something of a contrast with our current Secretary of Education. It's definitely time for a public school educator who had experience in the classroom to walk us through this crisis and beyond. We have a lot more to accomplish in education. I was born in Yale Acres housing project. That nucleus of family and community was always present in my life. I always say my parents were my best teachers. But for me to stand on the stage with the president-elect and vice president-elect and talk about the goals for public education is really just an example of what can happen in this country. The American public school system has been phenomenal. However, it also has its flaws. Zip code, skin color in many cases, are still determinants of success. My profession is not given the respect it deserves. I always have to do more with less. I've learned to listen. I learned to understand and never forget those experiences that I had, not only as a classroom teacher of my wonderful fourth graders, but as an instructor at the college level. There's so much more to accomplish. There's so much more to grow and to learn. And we're going to do it together as a country. Let's heal together. Let's learn together. Let's grow together. Okay, so I'm going to ask you an impossible question, Kevin. This is something I've been grappling with, so it's not quite fully formed, but here goes. Miguel Cardona will be the top education official at a time of deep division over education. And I'm talking, of course, about the deep divide between Americans who have college degrees and those who do not. And that's really driving so much of our political turmoil right now. So here comes Cardona, and he has this incredible personal story. But in many ways, it represents exactly the sort of, quote, rhetoric of rising that now rings very hollow to the millions of people who've been left behind. So I guess I'm just curious to hear what you think about this. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We use the term, times we use the term beat the odds schools, this idea that schools that are so extraordinary that they beat the odds, or we celebrate people like uh, Secretary Cardona who beat the odds, who came, he entered school, as you know, um, not speaking English. His grandparents moved to Connecticut from Puerto Rico, but he 
largely spoke Spanish in the home and entered school and was a, an emerging bilingual uh, himself. And he did not come from wealth. When we celebrate and see stories of extraordinary successful people who beat the odds, we need to keep in mind that there are odds, right? That there are odds to be beaten. And is that a fair system? Um, we can celebrate the individuals, absolutely, but don't celebrate the system that stacks the odds against those individuals. So that's why it's a dangerous story, right? It's, it's the Horatio Alger myth that has permeated a lot of American mythology about opportunity and, and schooling and uh, ability to you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps, all, all the, the rhetoric around overachievers. <laughs> and and the, the, the statistics are overwhelming in terms of the predictive value of knowing the wealth and parental education of a newborn baby and being able to predict what the income or educational level of that baby will be in 20 years or 30 years in terms of income. So a much more attractive goal for me in terms of the myth that we should embrace and pursue would be a system where the odds are not stacked against one group of people. And so if we look at issues of poverty, uh, communities with concentrated poverty, and of racism, we have some major societal obstacles that we need to address before we can reasonably expect that students will emerge from schools having relatively equal uh, educational and life chances. It seems like prior to Arne Duncan, nobody really paid any attention to who the Secretary of Education was. Uh, most people couldn't have told you the name of the Secretary of Education. And even after Duncan, I would imagine that most Americans uh, wouldn't have his name top of mind, and certainly not John King's name, John King, who succeeded Arne Duncan briefly there at the end of the Obama uh, administration's second term. DeVos changed that, and you know, you're the author of a recent book about Betsy DeVos, and I'm just wondering, how does Betsy DeVos change the game, not in terms of the policies that she advocated for, but in terms of the visibility of the Secretary of Education? Yeah, well, I should note first that we all have new books out. Yours is A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, which is a scholarly but accessible book, walking your readers through the history and the current status of attacks on U.S. schools. Mine is a great book to put in your guest bathroom uh, for quick and enjoyable reading. Not that yours isn't also enjoyable. You know, but one interesting thing, though, is that both of our books are at their core about the radical overhaul of public education. I think that Betsy DeVos represents that. What makes our, our books and this moment so interesting, I think, is that the stakes are so high. What's going on in terms of the U.S. Supreme Court's cases dealing with the Free Exercise Clause, in particular the Espinosa case, also really focuses policy attention at the state level, probably even more so than at the federal level, on the immediate future and health of public schools as a core democratic institution. So the, the Cruella DeVos slash DeVille image of her, which, you know, fair or unfair is, is how people in the public education community started to see her and, and her history in terms of a wealthy funder of voucher initiatives and someone who had never attended public school and someone who didn't send her kids to public school and who made a point of visiting voucher schools, private schools, charter schools. She chose to celebrate as 
as the nation's most prominent education representatives, she chose to celebrate privatization. And that was a break from the past. Even people like Margaret Stellings, who shared a lot of policy initiatives and ideas with uh, Secretary DeVos. These earlier secretaries of education shared a lot of the, the initiatives, the policy initiatives, but did so in a way that wasn't quite in your face. So I think that her, uh, her biography and sort of her symbolic stance was uh, just as important as the policy pushes that she made. Okay, we have reached the lightning round portion of the episode. We solicited questions from listeners, and they had quite a few. First up for you, Kevin, what's the first big difference we're going to see after DeVos leaves? The first thing that's going to happen is that the new administration will come in and try to quickly reverse guidance documents, rules, regulations that uh, the Trump administration put in place, a lot of which were reversing the Obama administration guidance documents, rules, and and regulations. So a return to some version of those, those Obama policies could be expected. Some of that's going to be quickly doable. Some of it's going to take years in terms of the regulations. And of course, OCR will start to actually enforce civil rights policies. That, that would be a, a nice change. Moving right along, charter schools. I do expect a de-emphasis on charter schools, but probably not taking major steps to change current policy, maybe just reining in some, some of the larger abuses and de-emphasizing charter schools as a reform mechanism. We got multiple versions of this next question. Will the new Secretary of Education call off testing this spring? I think the virus might take it out of the hands of of Secretary Cardona. The likelihood in my mind of children being back in school in large enough numbers to provide any sort of reliable or valid testing results seems minimal. Now, of course, we can administer the Secretary of education can, pursuant to ESSA, require states to administer tests to every student who's there, but it will become increasingly nonsensical as numbers decrease of students who can realistically be in school or whose parents are going to accept the idea of the children being in school. The one thing that I I think everyone seems to agree on is that whether we test or not, the high stakes uses of those test scores have to go out the window this year. And this last question comes from the most devoted listener of Have You Heard? That would be me. Cardona's nomination was almost universally celebrated. Randy Weingarten, who's the president of the American Federation of Teachers, was thrilled. But so was Jeannie Allen, who heads up the Center for Education Reform. I'm curious who you think Cardona will end up disappointing first. I think it depends on who he surrounds himself with. He's not a creature of Washington, D.C. He's never worked in Washington, D.C. He's never worked with Congress other than, you know, certainly some brief testimony. The Biden administration has brought in a lot of people from the Obama administration. If that happens in order to provide uh, Secretary Gardona with the experience that he that he might feel he needs in order to get a, a running start, he might very well bring in people who are returning with the Obama agenda. And for those of us who were very disappointed by the Obama agenda, that's a scary thought. If he does go that route, and if his top deputies are people who are immersed in more neoliberal thinking about education, then I, then I think it's Randy who gets disappointed first. 
That was Kevin Wellner. He's the director of the National Education Policy Center and the author of a new book, Potential Grizzlies, Making the Nonsense Bearable. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss some of our hopes for the changing administration. And I've got some surprises in store for him, including an idea for another book for us to co-author. I'll be springing that on him in the In the Weeds segment that we do for our Patreon subscribers. If that sounds intriguing, head over to patreon.com com slash have you heard podcast to join the fun. So Jack, we started off this episode with you doing your best Arnie Duncan impersonation. You did a fabulous job. And and what really stood out to me in that in that piece that you read and and really that whole speech is how much of Duncan's laundry list is now kind of off the table that so many of those policy ideas ended up being either discredited or they just didn't deliver on the really kind of grandiose claims that he was making and that in addition to that we now have some other bigger things that are kind of back on the agenda after being off the table for a really long time. And I'm thinking, for example, about what seems like a renewed attention to integration. Yeah, right. The fact that the prohibition on uh, federal dollars being used for school busing uh, for the purpose of integration, for instance, the fact that that has been lifted um, signals a kind of increased willingness to consider a broader set of policy aims, uh, you know, broader than saying, you know, well, let's bring in Teach for America, or um, you know, let's let's give teachers merit pay, um, you know, let's let's score them uh, according to their students' standardized test results. Um, It'll be interesting to watch uh, to see whether uh, Secretary nominee Cardona tries to cultivate this broader approach to education that you know scholars have been advocating for this for you know ten to twenty years, basically for the whole lifetime of high stakes testing, uh, viewing schools in a in a broader fashion as a part of a wider network of support for young people, um, and so you know. Busing for the purpose of integration, um, the fact that that may be back on the table is a signal that, um, you know, it, it may be that we are ready to have that broader conversation. The other thing I think is so fascinating about that is that that's really where Joe Biden's career started, right? That he was that he was that generation of Democrats who were really scarred by the Reagan years that we covered in our last episode of 2020. And this idea that if you ordered people around too much, if you ordered parents to put their kids on buses, that you would fuel a backlash. And so Biden basically said to white parents, you know, they'll never be busing under my watch. And here we are all those decades later and finally, finally, um, that really sort of harmful policy prohibition now seems to be winding down. So what like, what a sort of incredibly symbolic way to start the administration. Yeah. And I would just underscore something that Kevin said in our conversation with him uh, about Cardona's um, emphasis on full-service community schools and high-quality pre-K, right? That there are two, uh, you know, to use Arnie Duncan's words, uh, 
shovel-ready projects that you know we could get moving on right away and that federal support would be really instrumental in moving forward. Well, Jack, I mentioned at the very beginning that I have been waiting patiently and no Christmas gift from you ever arrived. Jennifer, uh, I hope you know that uh, every day uh, is a gift of friendship from me to you. Uh, And I'll start writing you a little note that says that. Every day is Christmas, really. Oh, that's great. Well, I, by contrast, am a very giving person, and I have a special surprise for you. I hope that it is a Patreon membership so that I can listen to the part of the show that I record with you each time we do it, but which I have never heard. It is not. It is 60 Seconds of Sunshine. Yay! That's good. Thank you. That. That's actually, that's the gift that I would have gotten for myself had I any idea how to procure it. Well, it's been a little while since we've enjoyed 60 Seconds of Sunshine, and boy, do we need it now. Which is why when I heard from teacher Kristen DeRosha that she had a sunny story for us, I was thrilled. Kristen teaches high school physics in Dallas. Her school is in hybrid mode these days, which means that she's teaching a handful of students in person and the rest remotely. Let's just say that the experience has been an adventure, to put it mildly. And Kristen's moment of sunshine involves a surprising encounter with a student. So we invite kids who need some interventions, whether it's standardized test prep or if they're failing classes. The student, as they're walking down the hall, a lot of us have never seen these students before. We just see their little black box with their name on the screen, and it's very exciting to see them. And as they're walking down the hall, I kind of think, is that one of mine? Is that one of mine? You know, I'm very emotionally attached to their little names as she was walking down the hall. She kind of looked and I saw her eyes light up and she goes, oh, miss. Oh, my God, miss. Oh, my God. Do you know who I am? And I said, yes, because I really didn't. But I was just going to play along with her and I didn't want her to feel like I didn't know who she was. And then she was like, it's me. It's me. It's me, Anna. And, and she pulled down her mask a little bit. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And like she kind of like ran over to me. And, you know, we're not even allowed to get near each other right now, which is really, really hard uh, because we are just naturally human. And so I said, I'm going to give you an illegal hug. And so <laughs> we just sort of quickly, you know, embraced. And but she was just like her mind was blown that she was meeting me in person. It was as if I was a YouTube star, kind of Instagram influencer. And I just thought it was just so delightful. And I just haven't really been able to forget about it because that child saw her teacher for the first time. My name is Kristen DeRosha, and this is my 60 Seconds of Sunshine. That was really good that we, that, I don't even know how to begin. Uh, I'm happy. This is a good way to start the new year. Um, I hope we get back into this. Those of you who are listening, if you have a 60 seconds of sunshine contribution to share with us, I just love these so much. Don't do it for you. Do it for me. Uh, you can reach out using the podcast Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. Uh, there's contact information on the blog, which Jennifer is Have You Heard Blog. 
Is that it? Yeah, right. Um, you're, you're nodding furiously. Um, and while I'm making announcements, uh, I want to remind people, the graduate student listeners particularly, that we are having our annual graduate student research contest. This is the third year in a row that we are doing it. Uh, we have had four previous episodes based on this because the winner and runners up have uh, had episodes of their own featuring their research. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to have your work featured on one of our episodes, uh, all you have to do is submit a pretty short description about what you're up to and why it would make for a good episode. Uh, we will eventually ask a small number of you to submit something a little bit uh, more uh, robust than that. But um, the information for that is also up on haveyouheardblog.com. Well, Jack, I, I imagine you think I couldn't possibly top the happy surprise of springing 60 seconds of sunshine on you. But great news, I have another surprise for you. I have a feeling that uh, you are about to taketh away after having giveth. You're going to, I just know you, you're going to spring something on me that I'm unprepared to talk. I feel like I should suggest what we talk about in the weeds just so that you can't do whatever you're about to do. Too late. I'm going to tell you what, what it is. So I've been thinking a lot about another book that we could write, and I'm going to give you a little hint. It's about whatever happened to the common good, and frankly, how the hell do we get back to having a sense of common good? I think and you're supposed to issue a di disclaimer to people before you have an unbeeped uh, word like that, Jennifer. Go on. I'm sorry. I, I won't interrupt anymore. So we're going to be discussing this in the weeds, and that's the special segment that we do for our Patreon subscribers. If this interests you all, you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by kicking a couple dollars our way each month and we've been running a special that if you subscribe at the ten dollar a month rate we'll send you a free copy of our new book a wolf at the schoolhouse door lots of people have been signing up jack i know you're pretty happy about that and today you can join us in the weeds to hear about a possible second book <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, while I let that one sink in, I will remind people that there are lots of ways to support the show without opening your purses, wallets, and pocketbooks. Uh, as our regular listeners know, my favorite is when you just share episodes uh, with people you work with or friends, family members. Um, you can also go on and uh, make sure that you are subscribing so that Every new episode downloads directly onto your listening device. Give us a rating while you're there. It helps people find the show. And if you've got ideas or you just want to interact a little bit, the Twitter handle for the show is at HaveYouHeardPod. I'm pretty sure a purse and a pocketbook are the same thing, Jack, but it's a new year, so I'm not going to quibble. Hey, I'll, I'll look it up. We'll talk about it in the weeds. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. Have You Heard.